Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode of The Serial Dynasty is sponsored by Sean T. Fitness. Shanti is the creator of several award-winning workout programs that can be done right inside your home. Just to name a few, Sean is the creator of the Insanity Workout, Insanity Asylum, T25, Insanity Max 30, and his newest release, Size. Size is a revolutionary new program created by Sean and released in July. Size is the end of exercise and makes losing weight an experience. For more information on all of Sean T's exercise videos and programs, go to SeanTFitness.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. As always, I want to thank each and every one of you for downloading this episode and all of your efforts to share the Serial Dynasty with all of your friends and family. Your efforts continue to help grow this audience and add soldiers to this movement every single day. Every person that you reach out to adds one more mind, one more perspective, one more set of eyes on this case, and leads us closer and closer to finally figuring out who killed Heyman Lee. There's been a lot going on in the last week since we released episode 13, Snitch or No Snitch. Most notably, episode 8 of the Undisclosed podcast, Ping, absolutely put the nail in the coffin and destroyed the state's case against Adan. We'll spend some time today discussing that episode, but before we do that, there's something else that I'd like to speak on. In last week's episode, I recommended to all of you to tune in to the Generation Y podcast that was going to be launching an episode where they were going to be discussing the Heyman Lee murder case. On the bright side, I was thrilled to see that so many of my loyal listeners took my advice and jumped right over and downloaded that episode of The Generation Y. Unfortunately, it was occurring to me in a very short period of time before my episode 13 aired that recommending that podcast may have been an error. They dropped a day early, and before I even had a chance to listen to the podcast, my Twitter and email were blowing up, with listeners pissed off about their experience in listening to that episode of the Generation Y podcast. Considering the fact that I'm the one that recommended for you all to go out and check it out, I thought we'd spend a little bit of time discussing that episode and breaking down some of the mistakes that were made. To begin with, I want to let all of you know that I did eventually listen to the episode, and all of you had every right to be irritated. There was a lot of false information, a lot of misunderstood facts that were presented in that episode. 
Honestly, I have to admit, it was frustrating for me to even listen to it. I understand that it was a tough case to take on, given that so many people are so invested in this case and so determined to solve it, that I'm willing to bet that 95% of their listeners, or more, were far more informed than they were on the facts of the case. Given that I was the one that recommended for all of you to download and listen to the episode, I felt some responsibility in the matter, so I reached out to Aaron, one of the hosts of the program, in hopes to touch base with him as far as some of the facts that he either misunderstood or misrepresented. As the show moves along today, I'm going to break down many of the mistakes that were made on their show. But I do feel that it's worth letting all of you know that Aaron was very gracious and very respectful in the email communication that we had back and forth. I pointed out to him a few of the mistakes that he made. At first, he didn't understand why everyone was so upset. He believed that the facts that he had were correct. After a bit of fact-checking, Aaron realized that there was quite a bit of false information in the episode. In response to that, he's making an attempt to make it right. I know that prior to recording this episode, Aaron and Justin had gone back and edited their episode of The Generation Y in an attempt to try to remove some of the false information that was on there. So if you were to download it now, you would get the edited version, which is shortened. There was a few things removed. There's still some mistakes in there, but it was an effort on their part to try to clean things up. I've also been told that they will be addressing the issue on this week's episode of The Generation Y, which will air tomorrow. At this point, I'm not making a recommendation as far as downloading it and listening to it, but I felt I should at least make all of you aware that they will be discussing the errors that were in the episode last week in tomorrow's episode. Now, that being said, one of the major issues that I had with that episode is that it did confuse people. There were a lot of people that listened to that episode that haven't spent months and months and months digging through all of the source documents and all of the evidence that a lot of us are already very well aware of. I've gotten over 250 emails in the last week asking me to address the mistakes that were made on the show and several others that were asking questions about things that were confusing them from, quote, facts that they heard on the Generation Y podcast. So let's go ahead and break down some of the discrepancies. I'll tell you that when I was listening to it, the first thing that really pissed me off right off the bat was a statement that they made that with all the interest in this case, nobody seems to be interested in justice or peace for Hayes' family. They stated that in Hayes' family's mind, they already have justice. And my response to that is that that could not be any further from the truth. Yes, a lot of the attention and focus from the serial dynasty as well as undisclosed does revolve around Adnan, but we've made very clear that our main purpose, and I will say that the focus of this show, the serial dynasty, is to attempt just to get to the truth, to find out what really happened, to give Hayes family real justice. But aside from that, while I understand the concern and the focus for Hayes' family that these guys have, I don't see how that is an excuse to ignore the fact that another life was taken here. If Adnan is innocent, his life was taken too. Not in the same way as Hayes, but Adnan has spent his entire adult life, 16 years in prison. And if it's proven that he did not commit this crime, then that is an absolute tragedy. And it's not something that should be ignored because the family of the other person involved here feel like they already have justice. I absolutely feel for Heyman Lee's family. It's the double-edged sword that we deal with every day in speaking about and investigating this case. But from my perspective, we can't stop trying to get to the bottom of this. We can't stop trying to find the truth 
because there's more than one life involved here. If Adnan Syed did not commit this murder, and I do not in any way believe that he did, then I absolutely believe this should be a fight to the death until we get him out of that prison cell. Until we can prove who actually killed Heyman Lee. And that's exactly what I intend to do. Moving along in the episode, there were several factually incorrect statements that were made. They briefly discussed Don and just said that he had an airtight alibi and they moved on. But all of us know that that's not true. Now, I'm not accusing Don of committing this crime, but to say that he had an airtight alibi is just simply not true. Don said that he was at work. His mother said that he was at work. The police never went any further with that. They didn't ask for time cards. They didn't ask for proof. It's just inaccurate to say that he had an airtight alibi. He did not. Then later in the episode, they make quite a big deal about the fact that Adnan never tried to call or page Hay after she went missing. But they give no consideration to the fact that neither did Don. And as I've mentioned before, if we had a balancing scale to determine who looks more guilty for not contacting Hay, in my mind, it's 100% Don. Anon's the ex-boyfriend. He's seeing other girls. He's in constant contact with Hay's best friends, who are in constant contact with her family. He knows what's going on. He knows that she's not answering any calls. He knows that no one's heard from her. Where Don, on the other hand, is the current boyfriend. She never showed up for her date with him on the night that she went missing, and yet he makes no attempt to ever contact her. Now again, I'm not saying that makes Don the culprit, but it certainly makes him a suspect, and if we're going to make the leap that Adnan not trying to contact Hay makes him guilty, well then we have to hold the same scrutiny to Don. And they didn't do that. They spent a little bit of time discussing Adnan's reaction to the phone calls that he got on the day that Hay went missing, asking about her whereabouts. That reaction being, oh man, she's going to be in trouble now. They say that that doesn't make sense because he knows that she is very responsible and punctual. One of them said, and I apologize, I, I know there's a Aaron and a Justin, but I had a hard time keeping the two voices separate and figuring out which one of them was which. But one of them said, quote, even when she was with him, meaning Adnan, she kept her responsibilities. In my mind, this is a misrepresentation of Hay. They presented her as, and even stated that she was a type A personality, very punctual, always kept all of her responsibilities, as though she was a person that never did anything wrong and never got in trouble. And don't get me wrong, from everything that I've read, Hay was a great person. But we also know that she's done high school things. For example, the week before she went missing, when she blew off a wrestling meet where she was supposed to be the manager to go see her boyfriend. We know that the night before she went missing, she stayed out past curfew and was fighting with her parents. We know that she was dating a boy, Adnan, that her parents didn't approve of due to cultural differences. So this isn't necessarily a huge point, but I do believe it's a slight misrepresentation of Hay, and they use that misrepresentation to point toward Adnan's guilt because his reaction was that if she didn't show up to pick up her cousin, she was going to be in trouble which to me sounds like a very plausible reaction. As they moved along, they made a statement that Neighbor Boy said that he saw the body in the trunk, and then explained that by saying that Neighbor Boy said that just because he wanted to tell a story. These were the points in the episode where I was just getting so frustrated I was about to just turn it off. This is obvious false information. Even if all they did was listen to Serial, they would know that Neighbor Boy never said that. That was a rumor where someone else said that he said that. And when questioned about it, 
He said that not only did he never see the body in the trunk, he's never seen any body, and that's not something he would joke about. So I don't know where this thought even came from or how they just pulled that out of air, but it was most definitely not true. Now, I do have to admit that there were a few things that were said that jogged my memory about a few facts that I had kind of let slip my mind over the past several months as we keep running down all these different rabbit holes. One of the hosts mentioned somewhat sarcastically that Anand was unlucky that the day Hay went missing and was murdered just happened to be the same day that he lent Jay his car. And the other host kind of chimed in in the background and said that one of the members of the track team told Sarah on Serial that Jay used to pick Anon up from track all the time. That it was such a regular occurrence that they wouldn't have thought anything of it if that was a day when Jay stopped to pick up Anon after track. That was a little detail that had sort of slipped by me and I never gave it much thought until now. And what's occurred to me now, and I'm sure this is something that a lot of you have already thought of, is the fact that Jay didn't have a car. Jay couldn't pick Adnan up from track practice without borrowing a car. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but the assumption there, to me, would be that Adnan used to lend Jay his car on a somewhat regular basis. If it's a regular occurrence for Jay to pick Adnan up after track, I think it's fairly safe to assume that Jay was picking Adnan up in Adnan's car. Now, stay with me for a minute while I try to explain why I think this is so relevant. One being that it would completely do away with the idea that this was just an unlucky day for Adnan. And that in order to believe his alibi, in order to believe that he was not the culprit, you would have to believe some ridiculous set of circumstances leading to this incredibly unlucky day. If Adnan lent Jay his car on a regular basis, then this could have been any day. Any one of the many days where he lent his car to Jay would have been one of those unlucky days. But more importantly than that, that piece of information is helping me to tie up some loose ends in the theory presented by Marissa in last week's episode. You'll remember that Marissa pointed out that it's possible that Jay may have been directly involved and didn't bury Hay on the 13th, that he or he and an accomplice simply dumped Hay's body in the woods at Leakin Park, didn't bury her, and returned several days later when there was a nice warm day, to bury her and cover her up better, which would fit with Jen's testimony that she had picked him up that night, disposed of the shovels, and then the next day, when it was raining, helped him dispose of his clothes. But one nagging piece of that for me was Jen's story about meeting Jay and Anon at Westview Mall to pick up Jay. You'll remember in that interview, she said that Jay and Anon got out, Anon said hello to her, Jay got in the car, Anon seemed normal. When Jay gets in the car, he tells her that they need to go retrieve these shovels. What I was having a hard time reconciling was the fact that that could only have been the night of January 13th because that's the only day that Jay had Anon's car. And it was presumed that Hay was actually buried on the day she was murdered on January 13th. So what I've been wrestling with is that that would conflict with Marissa's theory or, as a lot of people do believe, Jen was completely uninvolved and that story was completely made up. But as I've mentioned in past episodes, that's not my theory of the case. That doesn't mean that I'm right or that you're wrong. I just personally don't believe that Jen was completely uninvolved and completely made up everything that she said to the police. So like I said, if I believe that Jen was involved and she was explaining a series of events in a way to try to minimize Jay's involvement, 
or regurgitating the events in the way that Jay had relayed them to her, then Marissa's theory couldn't have worked. But then I remembered Will. If Jay borrowed Anand's car and picked him up from track practice on a regular basis, then to me that makes Marissa's theory even stronger than it already was. I think that a possible scenario for what happened would have been that, as Marissa said, Jay or Jay and an accomplice murdered Hay, or the other party murdered Hay and Jay was the accomplice or was witness to it somehow. The body was taken out to Leakin Park, dumped on the ground, where it stayed for a number of days. Five days later, there's another 50-plus degree day. The snow and the ice melt. Jay is borrowing Anand's car again, and while Jay has Anand's car, he returns to the burial site. It may have been something that he got worried about that day because of the warm weather and the melting snow, or it could have been weighing on him since the day that Hay was murdered, but assumed that her body was inaccessible because it would be buried in snow and ice, and he would leave footprints, and it would be very obvious if he went back there to move the body. But in any case, on that day, he returns back to the burial site, moves Hay's body, buries her, puts his shovels and picks or whatever he had back in the car, gets the call from Anon that he needs to go back to the school and pick him up. He can't have those tools in the car when he picks Anon up, so he dumps them in a dumpster somewhere. Picks him up, they spend the evening together. At the end of the evening, Jen picks him up, and he tells Jen he needs a ride back to get those shovels to dispose of them. I think that this theory also helps to reconcile the conflicting stories from Jen and Jay as to where she picked him up that night. You'll remember that Jen says that she picked Jay up at the Westview Mall and they went and got the shovels. But Jay says that Jen picked him up at his house that night. Well, maybe, just maybe, both are true. Maybe Jay was describing the night Hay was murdered. Maybe on that night... He had Jen pick him up at his house. And then several days later, when he went back to bury the body, that night, Jen picked him up at the Westview Mall. In any case, Jen helps Jay get rid of the shovels. He can't get rid of his clothes that night because he's still wearing them. So she drops him off at home. He gets out of them and puts them in a plastic bag and has Jen come back and pick him up the next day to dispose of his clothes somewhere other than at his house. And historical weather data shows us that on that day, it was raining. Jen remembers the next day when she picked up his clothes that it was raining. I don't have solid evidence that would prove that this is how things went down, but I do believe that it's a reasonable theory, and I haven't been able to find any other evidence that would contradict it. And so one of the benefits of having this massive audience of listeners, many of which are much, much more intelligent than I am, I'd like for you to think about that theory And shoot me an email and let me know if you have any other evidence that would either back it up or prove it wrong. And we'll discuss it further next week. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, getting back to the Generation Y episode, the episode was riddled with a lot of minor errors. They really don't make that much of a difference, but it was just frustrating. And I know that it's frustrating to us because we're so deeply involved in the case and we know these details. One of which that I heard a lot about from listeners was that they said that both Adnan and Jay were in the magnet program together at school. And of course, all of us know that not to be true. Jay was not in the magnet program, just Adnan was. And credit where credit is due, they both seem to agree that the idea of Jay being afraid of Adnan just didn't make any sense. And that part I do agree with. Jay was, for one, a much bigger guy. He had that, as they said, alpha personality. In his own mind, he's the criminal element of Woodlawn. It just doesn't make any sense to me either that Jay would ever be afraid of Adnan. Now next, there was a much more important factual error that I think is part of what helped lead the host to the conclusion of Anand's guilt, and that was the Nisha call. They spent quite a bit of time talking about it, and they said that Nisha was inconsistent. They said that maybe she was getting her days mixed up uh, because of referring to the adult video store stop. And they also said that Nisha stated that the call was about that time, being 3.30ish. And I'm sorry, but this part was just an absolute load of shit. None of that is true. The prosecution did a great job of alluding to facts that would lead the jurors to believe certain things without them having to say it. And we'll get into more about that later when we're discussing the undisclosed episode. But in regards to Nisha, Nisha never, ever testified that that call took place on January 13th. She was asked at trial if she had ever received a call from Adnan where he put Jay on the phone. And of course, this was an attempt to corroborate Jay's story of this happening when they were driving around after Adnan had murdered Hay. So they asked her if there was ever a time when this occurred. Nisha says, yes, there was exactly one time when this happened. At trial, the prosecution asked her about the context of the call, where she did say basically the same thing that Jay said. It was casual, hey, hello, how you doing? A conversation along those lines. At the first trial, Nisha went on to say that they were at the adult video store where Jay was working at the time when that call occurred, which of course we know that Jay did not have that job on January 13th. He didn't have it until the end of the month. At the second trial, when she starts to say the same thing, Yurik shuts her down. He stopped her from explaining that this call occurred while Jay was working at the adult video store and only allowed her to explain the context of the call. But what she did testify to was that she believed this call happened later in the evening, which would make sense considering the fact that Jay worked the night shift. It would also make sense because if you look at Adnan's phone records, Adnan never ever called Nisha before evening time, around 7 o'clock in the evening or later. The only call to Nisha in the 3 o'clock hour ever in Adnan's phone records was January 13th, the day where I would suggest the theory that 
as I've mentioned before, that call was nothing more than a butt dial, which I personally believe was likely due to the fact that the phone was in Jay's pocket. Jay was possibly helping move the body. During that time, it caused the butt dial. But whether you believe that theory or not, their representation of Nisha on that episode was completely false. None of that was true. And if Gutierrez had been doing her job, she could have used Nisha's testimony as an opportunity to impeach Jay's testimony. But like so much in this case, it's another one she let slip through the cracks. They also mentioned in the episode that no one can account for Adnan being at track practice. Well, the truth is, the police only ever asked two people whether Adnan was at track practice or not. The first was Adnan, who says that he was. He remembers talking to Coach Sai about prayers that he would be leading at the mosque. And the second person they asked was Coach Sai, who said, I can't be sure of the date, but I remember it was that warm day at the end of Ramadan where we actually got to practice outside. And I was walking the track with Adnan while he was explaining to me the prayers that he would be leading at the mosque in the next day or two. So as far as I'm concerned, that's two for two for Adnan actually being at track on time. And then there was the library. This was definitely a swing and a miss. And for the record, this is something that the Generation Y guys have acknowledged that they messed up. Uh, they've written some corrections out in social media. I believe they edited that part out of the podcast, but I know they're going to be discussing it on their next episode. But wow, they could not have been any more wrong about just about everything surrounding the library. They're making a case that Anon lied about his whereabouts and how Asia's alibi means nothing because it contradicts Anon's own story. Because Anon said that he stayed on the campus after school that day until track. When Asia says he was in the library and they say that the library was a half a mile away. And again, that is absolutely false. Yes, the library was a public library. It was not part of the school. However, it is a part of the school campus at least unofficially. I'm sure a lot of you have done this, but those of you that haven't, go on Google Maps and look at an aerial view of the Woodlawn High School. And what you'll see is that the Woodlawn Public Library butts up to the student parking lot at Woodlawn High School. It's actually a shorter walk to the library than it is to get into the school from that parking lot. From everyone that I've spoken to and asked about this that went to school at Woodlawn with a nun, they all just sort of considered the library part of the campus. The school's parking lot is where you parked to go to the library. In fact, a nun's friend, Krista, who interviewed on this show a few weeks ago, just posted photos today from a trip that she took to Woodlawn High School. I believe it was yesterday. Now, it's summertime. School's not in session. And she was pointing out that there was probably three dozen cars parked at the library, all parked in the Woodlawn High School student parking lot right next to the library. So even today, that library still feels and is assumed to be part of the campus. So to say that it was a half mile away and conflicts with Asia's alibi is just wrong. And then the part that really, really got under my skin was when they were discussing Asia. They go on and on about how Asia's unreliable and her story changes as much as Jay's and you don't know which version of her story to believe. And they paint her in a way that first she wrote the letter to Anand saying she saw him in the library. And then they say that Anand's family asked her to go to their house. 
when in fact, if I'm remembering the facts correctly, in her letter, she just said that she went to their house, and when she got there, there was a bunch of her family there, and they were very nice to her. I mean, she wrote a letter to Adnan explaining her experiences at his house with his family and how nice they all were. But on the Generation Y podcast, they say that Asia then changed her story and said that they asked her to go to that house and they pressured her and made her write this affidavit to provide an alibi for Adnan. They also claimed that she was contacted by the defense. And neither of these are true. Asia didn't decide to not testify for Adnan in his trial. Asia was never contacted or asked to testify in his trial. That information that they're putting out is just simply false. So they paint this picture that Gutierrez's clerk contacted Asia. They decided not to use Asia as an alibi witness because she says he was at the library and he says he was at the school and the library is a half mile away from the school. And then later writes the affidavit during the appeals process, but then changes her mind because the only reason she wrote that was because she was getting that pressure from Anand's family to write it. They failed to mention the fact that Asia had no idea any of this had happened. Asia never said that Adnan's family had pressured her into writing that affidavit. Kevin Urich testified to that, not Asia. And Asia was completely unaware until she was listening to Serial and heard that that's what had happened, at which point she immediately reached out to Sarah Koenig, let her know that that's not true, that's not what had happened, and she had no idea that Urich had done that, and further explained that when she talked to Urich, Yurik told her that she should not testify, that they had a mountain of evidence against Adnan, and she should probably just stay away from it. Once Serial had aired and she had realized what happened, and she reached out to Sarah, she got back in touch with Adnan's legal team and stated that she still and always has stands by her statement that she saw Adnan in the library until 2.40 on January 13th. She's written a new affidavit and is ready to testify in Anand's next post-conviction relief hearing. Asia was not wishy-washy. Asia has not changed her story. Her story has remained the same from 1999 until today. And the only reason her testimony was never able to be heard was a combination of Anand's attorney not doing her job and Kevin Urich's manipulation. Now they spend some time talking about cell phone pings and how it helps parts of Jay's story and doesn't help other parts of it. But as most of us already knew to an extent and completely understand now after last week's undisclosed episode, anything to do with the cell phone pings is just completely irrelevant. I thought that the guys actually had a pretty good grip on the bail situation. When they first discussed it, they took a pretty firm stance that this was institutional racism. It was a miscarriage of justice for him not to get bail especially considering that the main reason that he wasn't given bail was due to a falsified document provided by the detectives. Then later in the episode, the two sort of banter back and forth about the bail situation. They don't really agree at the end of the episode about a lot of things, but one of the issues was that I believe it was Aaron really dug his heels in about the fact that that bail situation and non-being unjustly denied bail wouldn't have made any difference in the case. And I think it was Justin that was arguing that he believed that it absolutely would have. So they were they were split on that particular fact. Really by the end of the episode I was I was sort of confused in some ways because they made a lot of statements that would lead you to believe that Adnan was innocent. 
For example, they both agree that the lividity issue completely disproves Jay's testimony, and they even say that it completely blows the prosecution's timeline, but then later explain how reading the trial transcripts would help you to understand the case better, even though they just said that the timeline used in that case is irrelevant. Then a very irritating part for me was the two of them alluding to the fact that the undisclosed team was filtering the information they're putting out there to make Adnan look innocent. They talk about some missing transcript pages and even take a subtle jab at the end of the show and tell you to make sure you look at the page number on the transcript pages. I mean, they're implying that Rabia has more transcripts that she's withholding because they make Adnan look guilty. First of all, I want to say that I do not in any way, shape, or form believe this is true at all. Rabia is on record several times stating that she has released the transcripts that she got in the electronic file from Sarah Koenig. And that's all of them. That's all she has. First of all, I trust all three of Rabia, Susan, and Colin. Now that's just my opinion. You're entitled to yours. But I absolutely trust them. And from conversations that I've had with them and from listening to the show and reading their blogs and listening to interviews, I just don't believe for a second that any one of them would risk their careers by lying when they have such an enormous, massive, millions and millions of people audience, especially about something like this that could be easily proven. If Robbie was lying, Sarah Koenig could grab a microphone or make a phone call and it would be viral across the world that Robbie is lying, she gave her more information than that, and it was incriminating and she's hiding it. And recently, within the last couple of weeks, there was a user on Reddit that I guess found some missing transcript pages from the trial. I have no idea how they got a hold of those or where they came from, but there's a big conspiracy on Reddit about these missing pages that this guy's found, or gal, I'm not sure if it's a man or a woman. But guess what? There's still nothing in those transcripts that show that Adnan's guilty. There's no other information there. If there was information and evidence out there proving Adnan's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, I really believe we would have seen it. There is, in fact, a large camp of people that really believe that Adnan is guilty. And some of those people fight tooth and nail to try to convince people that that's true. And I look for those things. You know, I had a listener tweet me this week telling me that I shouldn't write off Reddit that I should give it a chance. That there's a lot of good information out there on Reddit. And the truth of the matter is, I do use Reddit. I try to research for these episodes in as many places that I can. Like I've mentioned before, I get thousands and thousands of emails. When I find something that is possibly new information or a theory that maybe I hadn't thought about, one of the places I check is Reddit. I know that if there's information about a non-being guilty, that that's probably one of the places where I'll find it. So I don't ignore Reddit. I just don't participate in it because the difficult thing about Reddit is, yes, there is some useful information out there. But the problem is that anytime someone puts a post up about the case, you'll get a few comments that are factual and an intelligent argument. And then every single time the thread turns into the bickering and the name calling and you have to sort through 300 comments about people attacking each other, attacking Rabia, attacking Susan Simpson, myself, rather than present any actual facts. 
But I do actually subject myself to reading through that to try to see if there is some information out there that would lead me to believe that Adnan was guilty. And I just can't find it. No one seems to have it. And I'll speak about that a little bit more at the end of the show. But along these lines, I caught something that I think it was Aaron who said, he said he'd been looking at, quote, the arguments that people were having regarding guilt or innocence. And I think that may point us in the direction of why he had the information that he has and why he took the stance that he did. I think that a majority of the research that he did was on Reddit. And if you haven't been on there and you look through, I think it's called the Serial Podcast subreddit, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. That's what I always seem to find there are arguments. Now, another point where I think that they had some good points, Justin stated, or I think that it was Justin, that the idea that a serial killer or that someone else had murdered Hay and that Jay and Jen's testimony was completely coerced by the police was not improbable to him. And he said that he believes that Adnan deserves a retrial. He said that guilty or not, the prosecution did not get this right. So I'll give him that. I mean, Justin didn't come out and say that he believes Adnan is innocent, but looking at it from the lens of a matter of justice, he believes whether he's guilty or innocent, he definitely deserves to be tried again. This trial was not done correctly. It was not a fair trial. And if he's going to be in prison, that he at least deserves a fair trial with a fair defense. Now, an extremely irritating part about this episode, if you listen to it, was how they claimed that the best witness would be Hay herself from what she wrote in her diary. And then, after that, as far as I can tell, they completely made up diary entries that did not exist. Now, again, to their credit, I believe this part of the podcast, they edited it out and removed it. But in the one that I listened to, they made claims that her diary said that Adnan was stalking her and that he was controlling that she painted a picture of him in her diary as this mean, controlling guy that was stalking her, and it's just that's just not true. There was nothing like that in her diary, nothing at all. I have no idea where this information came from, but it was absolutely false, and it's my understanding that it has been removed. Now, lastly, at the close of the show, there was a long discussion about the plea deal and the appeal process. And in a nutshell... These guys have no idea what is going on with this appeal process and have a very misrepresented idea about what a plea deal means. As a recap for us that understand what's going on, the process that Anon is going through right now is that he's asking for post-conviction relief and asking for a new trial based on ineffective assistance of counsel. The elements of that appeal are that Gutierrez never contacted his solid alibi witness, Asia. And secondly, that Adnan says that he asked Gutierrez to see if he could get a plea deal, and she never approached the prosecution to ask for a plea deal. Now, for starters, they just absolutely didn't understand that process and didn't really have a grip on what was going on there. But furthermore, the one guy that I believe was Aaron was just going on and on about how asking for a plea deal makes a non-guilty. That it's a huge deal to him that innocent people don't ask for plea deals and only guilty people ask for a plea. And he was very firm on that point, and that's just absolutely false. Innocent people take plea deals all the time. If you believe that everyone that's in prison right now that took a plea deal took it because they were guilty, you're just naive. It happens all the time. Going to trial is a risk. 
And part of a lawyer's job is to do a risk-benefit analysis to determine whether it's a good bet to take that risk. There are plenty of times when a defendant's attorney will tell them, if we go to trial, whether you did it or not, you're going to lose, or you're very likely going to lose. So rather than go to trial and risk the death penalty or risk a life sentence, let's see if we can plea this down. I can tell you from personal experience, someone very close to me several years ago was faced with exactly this scenario on a smaller scale. This was a female who had been pushed around by her husband to the point where she snapped and threw a couple of punches at him. He called the police. She was arrested for domestic violence. Due to the fact that it was her word against his and he was the one with the bloody lip, her lawyer informed her that if they were to go to trial, she would very likely be convicted. It also happens to be that this woman works for a school system. If she were to take that risk and go to trial and lose and be charged with domestic violence, the punishment from the court system may not be that great, but it would cause her to lose her job, lose her career, lose her pension. So she decided instead to take a plea deal where she had to plead guilty in order to save her career. This is not uncommon at all. So at the end of the day, in regards to the Generation Y podcast, it was definitely not a good episode. There was a ton of factual errors, which really disappointed me because it's actually a podcast that I enjoy listening to. I've listened to several of their episodes, and I'm just a person who's very interested in true crime, and it's interesting to hear them talk about things. But as far as this episode's concerned, at first I was really kicking myself for recommending that you all check it out, considering there was all this false information, but I'm hoping the silver lining of that cloud is the fact that it gave us the opportunity to clear up some things that may have already been misconceptions in a lot of people's minds and correct some damage that may have been done from listeners who didn't realize that the information was false and were building thoughts and theories around some false information. Now with all this being said, at the end of the day, the Generation Y guys really showed some character. Like most of you, I was really frustrated after listening to the episode. I'm sure this was a really tough situation for these guys once they realized that some of the information they put out was incorrect. And from my perspective, they really handled themselves with some true character following that. Aaron put out several tweets today apologizing to the listeners for the mistakes that were made. And he also said that there would be an apology and a correction at the beginning of their next episode. So for me, while there was definitely some mistakes made, I don't believe that it was intentional. Aaron and Justin didn't put information out that they knew was incorrect to try to make a case. I think they were just trying to cram months' worth of research into a very short period of time in order to create the episode, and I truly believe that they believed that the information they put out was correct. And given that since that point they've gone back and done some research, they checked some of their sources, and realized the mistakes that were made, that they're willing to humble themselves and make the correction and apology, I think says a lot for them. Of course, you all have to make your own decisions, but for me personally, I'm still a fan. I think they have a great show. They made a mistake. We've all made them. And they're doing their best to correct it and move along. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, moving on to episode eight of Undisclosed. 
This episode was the nail in the coffin for the prosecution's case. In Kevin Yurick's Intercept interview this past winter, he made a point to say that Jay's testimony would likely not have been enough to convict Adnan, and that the cell phone records were not enough to convict Adnan. But Jay's testimony, corroborated by the cell phone records, was the solid evidence that put Adnan in prison. And there went your case. Between Susan's research and Mr. Cherry, the cell phone expert, someone finally made it crystal clear how useless and irrelevant that cell phone data really is. I'm not going to recap all of the technical details that were discussed in the episode. If you want to hear a detailed explanation of those facts, just go back and listen to episode 8 of Undisclosed again. But to summarize, historical cell data of the type that was used in Adnan's case cannot determine the location of the phone during a call. Now there's two sides to that. We have incoming and outgoing. As Rabia mentioned on the episode, AT&T themselves made very clear to point out that incoming calls could absolutely not be used for location. They are absolutely not reliable in that form. Sadly, the prosecution had this note when they based their entire case around two pings from incoming calls that happened at Lincoln Park, or supposedly happened at Lincoln Park, in the 7 o'clock hour, when they claimed that Hay's body was being buried by a nod. Yet another glaring piece of exculpatory evidence that the prosecution withheld from the defense. The reasons why those pings are completely unreliable are many. There's the fact that for an incoming call, the network has to search out to find your phone. And in order to do that, the ping could originate on the tower closest to the place where the caller called from, not where the person receiving the call was located, or it could originate in the last tower that the phone was connected to, which could be somewhere miles away, states away. It could really be anywhere where that phone had recently been. Or really, the way the science works, it appears that that call could originate on just about any tower. Who knows? I mean, AT&T says that it's not reliable. There's no way of using that information to point out where the receiving call is located. No way at all. And even the outgoing calls, which should originate, in theory, from a tower that was somewhat close to the caller, but in no way can we assume that the call would originate in a tower that was geographically the closest to the phone when it's making the call. There's a number of reasons for that. One point that was mentioned but not really gone into detail has to do with the tower being busy, as was mentioned in the episode. And from some research that I've done and some of my own personal experiences, phones will jump all over the place. A tower can only capacitate so many calls at one time. So if, say, there's two, three, a dozen people, however many, connected to a particular tower, and you happen to be standing right next to that tower, and you try to make your call, that tower likely won't take your call. Your call would be originated from a different tower. Think back, I'm sure we've all experienced those times where one day you'll make a call from your living room and have full bars or full service on your phone to make a call, and two hours later you try to make a call and you have one bar and you can't get through or your calls are getting dropped and you don't understand what's happening. Well, what's happening is you were connecting to two different towers. That tower that you had great reception on that happened to maybe be a block away from you was busy with other calls, so it sent you to a different tower. You can watch it happen now, if, especially if you get into the more rural areas where you know the latest technology is the LTE technology, which is the, supposed to be the fastest data service available. 
If you get out of the larger cities where not every tower has LTE technology, you'll see on your phone when you're switching and changing towers. My wife and I have a cabin in northern Michigan. There's actually a tower that has LTE data strength that I can connect to from my cabin on my phone. There's also a tower that I can connect to from there that has 4G technology. There's also even a tower I can connect to from there that has 3G technology. And the reason that I know this is because I'm constantly fighting with that if I'm outside and maybe need to look something up from the same place. One day I'll have that LTE connection. The next day I'll look, I'll have the 3G connection. The next time I might look, I'll have the 4G connection. My point is, it's never made sense to me. Why would my phone connect to a 3G tower that has terribly slow internet with one bar where I can barely get out when I know there's an LTE tower that I'll have full bars on just right down the road? And the reason is a lot of the things that were described in the undisclosed episode. There's no exact science to which tower your phone's going to grab. There's a thousand factors involved. Line of sight, weather, humidity, busyness of the tower. In the fire service, our radios that we use to communicate use similar technology, and we have the same issues. There's some days I can stand with my 5-watt portable radio and reach the repeater tower that's several miles away from me with no problem whatsoever. The next day, I can't hear anything. Or maybe it's cloudy one day, or it's humid the next day, or it's raining one day and the signals bounce and move, and it's just not a consistent technology. It's not something that you can, by any means, go into a courtroom and claim that because a phone happened to ping a particular tower, which really, from what Susan explained, means it happened to originate on a certain tower, that that can then tell you where that phone was located. So I really thought that the two-sided approach that they took in this episode was very well done meaning they were working at the same time during the undisclosed episode where, on one hand, they were explaining to us how the cell phone data and why the cell phone data is completely irrelevant, cannot show you location, and means nothing, all at the same time saying, if you don't believe me and you think we should use the science or we should make these broad assumptions on the cell phone technology, it still doesn't work with the state's theory of the case. So I don't think there's any way the undisclosed team could have done an any better job than they did at completely debunking the state's case. Moving on, I have time for one email today that relates to the episode as we're already pretty long. This email is from Sophie K. from Chester, United Kingdom. Sophie writes, Hi Bob, as an expert witness yourself, how did episode 8 make you feel? If you had been asked to do some tests with the prosecution and they told you not to record it as they would do it themselves, how would you react to that? I'm guessing that's not normal. Also, you said you have been on jury duty before. Are there any rules for the jury that allow them to ask questions at any point or ask for clarification if they don't understand something? I feel as though I would have been very confused by the cell tower information, and the only bit that would stick in my head would have been being told that the cell phone was in Lincoln Park, which would not be good for Adnan. Love the show. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks, Sophie, and uh, those are good questions, and that short email leads perfectly into the last two points that I want to make about the episode. In regards to being an expert witness, no, that is not normal. It's insane that it was done that way. It's crazy that the expert was letting the prosecution even be involved in the testing. Now, I'll point out that most of the cases where I serve as an expert witness, I'm not doing technological testing in this manner. 
most of the cases that I testify in are providing my opinions uh, regarding firefighter training, uh, administrative duties, things of that nature. Uh, I've never been an expert witness on, say, an arson case. I have testified in several arson cases, but not as an expert witness. I testify as the investigating officer from the fire, so a fire that happened in my jurisdiction that I investigated. So on the other side of that, as an investigator, we use third-party experts to test things. Say we need to test the functionality of a thermostat or some wiring or the ignition temperature of a particular fabric, things of that nature that we need to test to prove or disprove whether or not there was an arson. Most certainly when I can, I observe the testing if that's logistically possible. But even when I'm doing that, I don't just choose to, but I am required to stay out of the way and not be involved in the testing. Meaning I can't have my hands on anything. I can't be in the middle of it. I can observe what they're doing, and that's it. And the expert provide their own reports, their own documentation, and present their own findings. I can then reference those findings after they've been disclosed to the defense and they have the same findings to look at. But in no way, shape, or form have I ever been allowed to participate in the testing procedures. So I think your assumption is correct that it was absolutely insane that it was done that way. I'm actually surprised that the expert allowed it to be done that way and further surprised that it was allowed into court when it had been done that way. And then furthermore, even beyond that, The fact that the entire testing was ridiculous. They didn't disclose their control. They didn't disclose all of their results. As I think Colin mentioned, they cherry-picked which results they wanted to display. The expert witness report should have said, we made 10,000 tests and only have these 13 results that might work for our case. That's a very important piece of information for a jury to have, that only a small fraction percentage of the testing actually worked to demonstrate what it is that they were attempting to demonstrate, that over 99% of the testing did not support their case. Now, in regards to the second aspect of your email, the jury, I'm glad you wrote this email because that was the first thing I was thinking when I was listening to Susan explain how the prosecution were presenting this. It was completely smoke and mirrors. I'll give Murphy and Urich credit. If their goal was to win this case, to win this battle, they strategically played it very, very well. If their intent was to provide the jury with all the true facts of the case and let them make a decision, they failed miserably. The tactic that they used was quite genius. See, this jury is sitting there listening to testimony for weeks. Day in and day out and day in and day out. The cell phone evidence particularly would have been, number one, extremely boring. And number two, very difficult to understand and even more difficult to retain all the way till the end of the trial. So the way the prosecution played this was pretty sharp. So they have Jay testify. He gives his story. Now he testified for several days. It's a lot of information for a juror to remember, and oh, by the way, they're not allowed to take notes. As an instructor, I know that if I intend for my students to retain the information that I'm presenting to them, I need to chop my class up into 45-minute to 60-minute sections. Every 45 to 60 minutes, I give them a break, let them stretch their legs for 5-10 minutes, come back and start again. 
It's because it's been proven adults' attention span can only last about that long. Well, in a jury trial like this, they could be listening to testimony for and sitting there for three, four hours straight before they're given a break. So you can almost guarantee they're basically tuned out not retaining anything or very little after that 45 to 60 minute mark. So Jay gives his testimony and they hear it. Later they bring the expert witness up and they ask him very misleading questions. Susan gave some examples of that in the episode where they would say, if a person were to testify that they drove down this road and the cell phone records indicate there was a ping on this tower, could we assume in that instance that the testimony was true, or something to that effect? And the expert would reply, yes. If that was the situation, then yes. I think that Yurik didn't get mixed up. He didn't accidentally present a set of facts that weren't true. They were manufactured, just like Susan said, but it was done purposefully. Before I testify as an expert witness, there's a lot of meetings that happened before that, because the firm that's hiring me, whether it be the prosecution or the defense or whoever it is, they want to know what my findings are and what I'm going to testify to. They may decide that, well, that's not going to help our case, so your services are no longer needed. We don't want you to testify. They have the right to do that. But I've had several instances where an attorney would ask me, well, so would you say this to be true? And I might say, no, that's, that's really not accurate. Well, what if I word it like this? Could you... Could you answer yes if I worded it like this? Uh, it's still kind of shaky. I wouldn't be comfortable putting my reputation on the line and committing career suicide by being proven to lie on the witness stand. Okay, well, what if I phrase it like this? Like maybe give you a hypothetical. Then could you say, yes, that's true? Well, yes, if you phrase it as a hypothetical in that scenario, yes, I could. So it's a tactic that's used because an expert witness, I can't say would never lie, but it would be an extreme rarity to get an expert witness to give false testimony. And you heard that in this case. You heard the point when Gutierrez confronted the expert and made him admit that no, you couldn't find location based on cell data. It would have been convenient for the prosecution for him to lie there, but he wouldn't do it. Expert witnesses, in a lot of cases, get paid a lot of money to do that job. And they're not going to risk that to help one attorney or one prosecutor get their conviction. So Yurik's plan was let Jay give his testimony. He had already determined with his expert witness what questions he can ask that the expert will confirm. So he does that even though those two really have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Jay testified one thing. He asked the expert about a completely different scenario. But how many of you think that the jurors actually caught that and were paying attention to something that Jay had said five days before that or a week before that, especially when it gets down to these technical minute details? So he plants those two seeds in the jurors' heads and then drives it home at closing when he makes the grand statement that, remember, that Jay's testimony may not be enough, but it doesn't stand alone. His testimony was confirmed by the cell phone records. You have to convict because Jay gave a story, the cell phone records confirm it, there's no way he could have known that information, there's no way that he could have known what towers he was pinging, and therefore a not guilty and you have to convict. And the jury bought it. And Gutierrez didn't challenge it. Because as we know, that in fact, that's exactly what happened. Jay did know exactly what the cell phone evidence said, and he did create the story after several failed attempts to match up with that data. Like I said, smoke and mirrors. And this is the reason why I think that it was so ridiculous that at the end of the Generation Y podcast episode, they tell you, forget undisclosed, 
forget serial. You need to read the trial transcripts. You need to read the trial transcripts to understand why Adnan was convicted. And yeah, if you read the trial transcripts, sure it looks like he should have been convicted. I don't think that jury made a huge mistake. They had a prosecution that was manipulating and bold-faced lying to them about what was going on. And Anand's attorney made no effort or very little effort to contest any of those lies, any of those false facts, any of the manipulation. She just let it happen. She didn't present a defense for him. She didn't present alibi witnesses. She didn't impeach testimony. She just let it happen. That's why Adnan was convicted. And that's exactly why he deserves a new trial. On next week's episode, I'd like to address the possibility of Adnan's guilt. I know that may come as a shock to a lot of you, but hear me out. I'd like all of you to shift gears for a minute. I want you to really try, really try your hardest to find evidence that would prove that Adnan is guilty. So this call out is for those of you that believe that he's guilty already. Send me the evidence. And for those of you that believe that he's innocent, try to find some evidence. Send your thoughts in in the next few days to theories at SerialDynasty.com. And I think I'll have an interesting show for you next week. I want to thank our sponsor, Sean T. Fitness, for helping to keep this movement alive. Special thanks to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating our theme music. Thanks to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. And thank you again to all of you listeners for continuing to send your thoughts and theories into theories at SerialDynasty.com and continuing to help us grow this army. Until next week, this has been the Serial Dynasty. Mm-hmm.